So this morning, we're continuing to work through Paul's first letter to the Corinthians in our series on consecration, as you've heard. And so last week, we took a little bit of a break. We, we did a Christmas service, but somehow, in the Lord's goodness, we ended up talking about consecration anyway, um, because... We looked at how Joseph was willing to be consecrated unto the Lord for the plans and purposes of Jesus' birth. Um, You remember the plans A, B, C, D, whatever. We just keep rolling until we hit the Lord's plans as we submit to him. And so this week we're still doing consecration. And you might remember that um, the week before Christmas, Pastor Dave preached on sexual immorality and consecrated sexuality. And in many ways, this morning's message and next week's message really flow together with that. So this week we're looking at consecrated marriages, and next week we're going to look at consecrated singleness or celibacy, and Nancy's actually going to preach for us, which we're all super excited about. Um, So before we get rolling, I have two, two sort of caveats that I want to say, and the first thing is, whether you are married or single, don't check out either week. Because there is something for all of us, whether we are married or single or widowed or divorced or remarried, wherever we're at, there is something good. And so stay with me, even if it's not quite applying directly to you in the moment. The other thing that I want to say before we dig in is that um, looking at God's perfect plan for such an intimate thing can be really hard. Um, There are some of us that are divorced. There are some of us who um, are within complicated marriages. There are some of us who have really struggled with or continue to struggle with singleness and um, brokenness within intimacy. These are hard topics. Um, And all of us, at some point or another, wherever we fall on the spectrum, have fallen short of God's design, right? And so... um, While we're going to look at God's perfect design, I just want to say from the forefront that there is such grace. That God shows us the ideal and he holds us when we fall short. And he promises us new mercies every morning and directs us to keep walking in his ways. And so this is is invitation and grace and looking forward and not shame. Everybody with me? Our God is good and he is kind. All right. So, without further commentary, let's dig in. We are in 1 Corinthians 7, and we'll be looking at verses 1 to 16 this morning. First Corinthians 7, starting at verse 1. Now, for the matters that you wrote about, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. 
Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession and not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. So he's saying this is something that Jesus himself said. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say this, I and not the Lord. So that doesn't mean that this is less authoritative. It's just Paul's drawing from his wisdom as opposed to a direct quote. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he's willing to live with her, She must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? The word of the Lord. Can I get the next slide, Brittany? So this is Herbert and Zelmyra Fisher. And I know you're all hoping that we're hoping Zelmyra is a good baby name. Um, I really like it. Anyway, this is Herbert and Zelmyra Fisher. And on May 13 of 2010, this couple celebrated their 86th wedding anniversary. 86 years. Can you even imagine? So they got married in 1924 which means that together this couple weathered the Great Depression, World War II, the Civil Rights Movement, the Korean, Vietnam, Cold, and Gulf Wars, and the Iraq War, and they saw 15 United States presidents come and go. Just crazy. When they were interviewed about their 86 years together back in 2010, Herbert shared that his favorite pastime continues to be holding Zelmyra's hand and sitting on the porch that he built for them with his own hands in 1946. He said, the kids are gone now, so I get to hear her. (laughs) At the time of their deaths, Herbert in 2011 and Zelmyra in 2013, they were both over 100 years old. They left behind five children, ten grandchildren, Nine great-grandchildren and four great-great-grandchildren. Shortly before he died, Herbert said, I'm surprised 
I didn't think I'd be married to her for this long. And Zelmira said, me too. But I knew that I would never look for another husband. She knew that no matter what happened, Herbert was her one and only. We all love a love story, don't we? Like you can't not look at them and not want what they have. There's something about 86 years of love and commitment through thick and thin that causes us to stop. It makes us feel warm and maybe some of us have tears in our eyes. There's something about long-suffering love that seems to fly in the face of this world. And it stirs up hope and it brings light into darkness. There's something about a beautiful marriage and it points to something so profound that it's really hard to name or even put our finger on it. And I think the reality is that marriage, as God intended it, puts the powerful and profound love of God on display in this physical way that we can look at it and see what the love of God looks like. And this is why it's so incredibly important for the church to get marriage right. And it's why it's so incredibly important that the church in Corinth, as the church is setting off, gets marriage right. So Paul starts this section of the letter by saying, now about matters that you wrote. So what we can infer from that is that the Corinthian church had actually written Paul and asked some very specific questions about marriage and divorce that he picks up in our passage. So the question is, what questions did the Corinthians ask Paul that he's going to address? And this is fascinating. Now remember, we've got this Corinthian church, and it's super diverse, and it lives in this super sinful city, and sexual immorality is something that runs rampant. But this Corinthian church, they've been so convicted by teachings about the dangers of sexual immorality, and they've been so moved by the example of Paul and other single church leaders and their celibate lifestyle, that they're starting to wonder if they need marriage and sex at all. They're literally asking questions like, Paul, should we just encourage everyone to stay single and to stay celibate rather than to get married? Because then we can just make any kind of sexual distraction or temptation a non-issue. Paul, if our spouse isn't a believer, shouldn't we divorce them so that we can be totally devoted to God? Like this is this is not what we get in our office right now, you know, like pastor. Can I be divorced because I want to be holier? I want to be more godly. Paul, if we're married, maybe we should just separate. Or at minimum, we should stay celibate even within our marriages so that we can devote ourselves wholly to the worship of God. It sounds crazy, doesn't it? Have you heard this argument come out of anybody in recent years? Very rare, right? We should really applaud their zeal and their desire to honor the Lord. And yet, there's a problem here. They're missing it. They don't quite understand this gift that marriage can be and the inherent holy value that there is to a godly and set-apart marriage. They just aren't understanding what marriage is all about. And in the hundreds of years that have passed since Paul wrote the letter, our arguments might be different, but we still don't seem to understand what marriage can be and what it's all about. 
All around us we see confusion about the institution of marriage. The world in recent years has sought to redefine marriage to include same-sex couples, polygamous couples, or couples pursuing an open marriage. As I was researching for this sermon, I even found that there are absurd cases of people being legally married to pets or objects or, I mean, you can fill out a form for anything these days. Even within the confines of traditional male-female monogamous marriage, we see all sorts of brokenness and dysfunction, don't we? I don't know that there's any one of us that hasn't seen broken marriage that causes pain. Researchers report that in the United States alone, 50% of all marriages will likely end in divorce, and the average age for those is eight years. A marriage lasts about eight years before ending. It's reported that 15 to 20% of spouses cheat at some point in their marriage. All around us, we see these examples of unhappy, unhealthy, and even unsafe marriages. Infidelity, selfishness, disrespect, physical, emotional, verbal, and sexual abuse are all too common, even within Christian marriages. And even in what might be called a safe marriage, divorce lawyers report that many people choose to end what was intended to be a permanent union for such reasons as we just don't have anything in common anymore or we just don't find one another attractive anymore or we've got different goals we just aren't happy together or I found someone else who gets me better doesn't sound very permanent does it the institution of marriage has been cheated cheapened and tarnished and unfortunately the statistics say that the way marriage looks in church isn't very much different than the world. Like our statistics within the church of marriage aren't that different. It's tragic. So few of our marriages, even within the church, really represent what God intended it to be. So few of them really put the love of God on display for all the world to see. So what can be done? What does it look like to really have that consecrated, set-apart, holy marriage that Paul is pointing to in his letter? Paul gives some really clear and direct and quite concise guidance. It's almost as if he's making a list of points here, rolling through the bullet points of questions that the Corinthians had sent him. So first, says Paul, you're right. Sex outside of marriage is never good. It's never a good thing. It never bears good fruit. We've all seen it. it. It robs us of what God has for us. And it never bears good fruit. And yet, sexual temptation is a very real thing. And sex is a very good gift from God that's given to some. And so, says Paul, do not encourage everyone to remain single. Instead, understand and recognize that both marriage and singleness are good gifts from God. And we've got to make room and space for both. Point people who passionately desire physical intimacy and those that may be prone to temptation to holy marriage between a man and a woman so that the passion can be expressed and lived out in a safe way and in a way that really models God's delight. Better to marry, says Paul, than to burn and wrestle with passion. Second is this idea of remaining celibate within marriage. 
So here's the deal, says Paul. It's okay to abstain from sex for a brief agreed-upon time frame, almost like fasting, if you want to commit to praying together. But do not perpetually withhold from one another. It only produces discontent and temptation within the relationship. Now, it's interesting here, the way that Paul phrases this, like we think this is just about physical sexual intimacy, but it literally says that neither husband or wife should withhold affection from one another. So, I mean, that's physical affection, that's emotional affection, kindness, love. A husband and wife are not to consider themselves their own person, but to consider themselves as of their spouse to give Affection, and neither is to withhold affection from their spouse. It doesn't matter if one's spouse has changed with age. It doesn't matter if one is put on weight. It doesn't matter if there's disagreement or complication. Married couples are never to withhold kindness or affection from one another unless it's agreed upon for spiritual discipline. Just as God freely pours out his delight and affection on us, though we are sinful, showing affection is the duty of married couples. Literally, it says it's the debt owed. He and she should give the debt owed to one another. And debt comes whether we feel like paying it or not. We still have to pay it. As a caveat, this passage has been twisted in the past to imply that one partner has the right to demand things from another. We've heard this argument before. And I want to be clear here that this passage does not give anyone permission to demand sex or affection from a spouse. It's not in there. What it demands is kindness. It demands affection out of both spouses in all circumstances, which means that if one is sick or struggling, the other's patient. Where there's conflict, we express affection in the way we communicate with one another and the way that we come to the table and discuss these things. A consecrated marriage is one in which both parties love unconditionally and wholeheartedly, physically and emotionally. God does not force himself on us. He doesn't withhold himself or his love from us. And so we are to behave as God does within marriage. Now you can see how this one point alone points to how marriage shows us what God intends and how God's love is unconditional. Next, Paul goes on to address for the Corinthians their questions about divorce. Really simply boiled down, Paul says, no, don't get divorced. Whether you're both believers or one is not, don't do it. And if you have or do get divorced... Don't get remarried. But there are exceptions. If one spouse has died and the remaining struggles to live celibately, they may get remarried. And if an unbelieving spouse demands a divorce from a Christian spouse, that Christian spouse is free once again to marry. Paul goes on to explain that if a Christian spouse remains married to an unbelieving spouse, that household is sanctified. And even the children are considered holy. Now, to be clear, Paul's not saying that the unbelieving spouse or children are saved. This isn't salvific. It's saying that because of the believing spouse, the favor of God rests on that house. And there may be salvific purposes in which those children grow up to call Jesus Lord and Savior. 
and where that spouse comes to know the Lord as well. There's a caveat to this piece of wisdom as well. Later on, Paul himself says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So the point is, Paul is not saying that it's okay for a Christian to marry an unchristian or a non-Christian. What he's saying is that in the cases where a married couple and one of them becomes a Christian and the other one doesn't, they stick it out. Or if they come in as Christians and one walks away, they stick it out. Does that make sense? Okay. Now that was a lot. It was a lot of (laughs) methodical data. And as I said in the beginning, divorce in particular is really hard. It's hard for us to think about and talk about. And every situation is different. And this particular passage of scripture does not provide a complete biblical theology of marriage and divorce. There's so much more that can be said. But what I want to point out today in this message is that God takes marriage very seriously. Just as God promises to never separate himself from us, God's intent for marriage is that it is never, ever severed. Just as God walks through us or walks with us through flood and fire, through pain and sorrow, just as he stays with us when we sin and when we reject him, Christian couples are called to walk with one another, to stick together regardless of how hard or painful, complicated or difficult it may be. Because Christian marriage is not a matter of comfort. It's not about having our needs met. It's not about emotional feelings. Christian marriage is about holiness. That's the point. This is a sober sober thing. And it's a staggering thing to consider for those of us who are married. But it's also a sober and staggering thing to think about for those of us who are planning to one day be married. Marriage is never to be entered into lightly or selfishly. It does require everything that we've got to give. And then for those of us who are married, it requires a little bit more. And it's not something that we can walk away from or get out of unscathed. Can we get Herbert and Zelmira back up there, maybe? Sorry, Brittany. When Herbert and Zelmira Fisher were interviewed about their 86 years of marriage, both of them gave glory and credit to God for their years together. We reaped what we sowed into one another, they said, which Heather talked about this morning. Herbert said that they'd made it because neither of them had ever considered divorce to even be an option. And when asked what advice she'd give to young couples, Zelmira said, Remember that marriage isn't a contest, so never keep score. God put the two of you together on the same team, and only together can you win. I'm certain that the Fishers had their hard days, and we know so very little about them. I'm certain that they didn't have a perfect marriage. None of us do. And yet in so many ways, their story points to that covenant, self-sacrificing, serving love of God. Because the thing is that as they shared testimony too, the Fishers wouldn't have had the marriage that they had if they hadn't known the love of God. 
and if they hadn't been willing to do things his way. Church, when our marriages look the way that God intended them to, we become like Hallmark TV to the world. We do. Like, not in the sense that everything is perfect and predictable, um, but in the sense that there's something profound there about unconditional love that's long-suffering. Our stories become love stories that draw people into the ultimate love story. We have what the world wants it needs, wants and needs, and it goes so much deeper than just emotion and fuzzy things. Because consecrated marriages point us to the love of God and the way that he loves the world. And the beauty of it is that when two spouses commit to doing things God, doing things God's way, that happy and joyful union is the fruit. Like it, it blesses us as individuals, those of us who have Marriages that have blessed us can testify, like there's just such a beauty to it. And it bears fruit to the world around us. It bears fruit in our children, and it bears fruit for the kingdom of God. We've been on this journey of consecration, and that journey is not just about being perfect Christians. It's not about Gold Avenue Church being this, like, perfectly holy church, right? It's about being set apart for the glory of God. It's about being a city on a hill that the world can see the light shining out of. And as we consecrate ourselves, whether in singleness or marriage, to do it God's way, that light just radiates out. How might we be impacted and how might the world be impacted if we really loved as God commanded us to? How might the world be impacted if divorce rates in the church just dropped off the bottom? What might the world see if we truly loved our spouses as Christ loved the church, without withholding, with selfless, long-suffering endurance? How would our children and our grandchildren view both singleness and marriage if we set powerful examples of living into each as a good gift from God? Church, this morning, I believe that the Lord is inviting us to model our intimate relationships, whether single, married, widowed, divorced, whatever it might be, after the relationship that we see between Jesus and his church. Jesus loved us enough to die for us. He sticks it out with us when we reject him, when we sin, and when we turn our back. And so, friends, this morning, I I think the first thing is a question, like, do we, do we know personally that long-suffering love of Jesus? Because Scripture tells us that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. We can only give the love that we've received. And so if you don't know that kind of long-suffering, enduring love of Jesus, and you want to know that this morning, please come talk to me or Mark or a prayer partner, because our God has such love to offer. And even if you've been a Christian your whole life, but you struggle to love others well, it may be an invitation to receive more of the Lord's love so that it can be poured out. If we're single, I think the question and the invitation this morning is, are we looking at marriage the way that God looks at it? Because it's not about emotional needs again. It's not about self-fulfillment. It's about modeling God's selfless commitment and holiness. Have we asked the Lord if perhaps singleness is a gift that we have yet to unwrap that's good 
and full of love because God does not withhold love from any of us. There's tremendous love and fulfillment to be found within singleness, which we'll hear much more about from Nancy next week. And if we're married, I think the question is, and the invitation is, are there ways in which we have, whether intentionally or not, withheld ourselves from our spouses? Have we withheld any kind of affection or love? How might God be inviting us to consecrate our marriages today? And if we're separated or divorced or widowed or in a complicated spot, perhaps the invitation is to ask God or to continue to ask God what it looks like to move forward in holiness. We have a God who makes all things new and who brings beauty from ashes. And he has a good plan that will give him glory. Friends, what love story would the world hear if all of our love stories were truly set apart for the glory of God. When my um, husband and I first got married, a mentor of mine gave me a book by a guy named Gary Thompson, I think. Thomas, thank you. And the whole book is about how Marriage isn't about being happy, it's about being holy. And as a person who grew up in the church, I hadn't really heard that angle, which is surprising. Um, And it's the truth. The way that we love, and the way that we do it, the way that God does it, just has such a profound impact on the world. And so I I don't have some fancy wrap it up with a bow ending other than let the way that we love, whether we're single or married, point to the way that God's, God loves because it's such a profound testimony to the world. Let's be a church that does marriage as God intended, who raises children to do marriage and singleness as God intended, who sees singleness as a gift, um, and who takes things seriously as God does because I believe that there's just such tremendous fruit to bear. Amen? All right, I'm going to pray for us while the worship team comes up. And our song of response is Refiner's Fire, which is an oldie but a goodie. We sing it here a lot. Um, and as always with this sermon series, it's, it's an invitation. Please do not invite God to burn you with fire and refine you if you're not ready. Um, so I would just invite you to sit with the Lord. Hear his voice. What's he asking for this morning? What's he inviting you to contemplate with him? And then as you're ready, let's invite the Lord to um, make us holy. So let's pray. God, we thank you that you're a God of love. And that everything you invite us to is for our good and for your glory. God, you're not just a taskmaster or a, a rule maker. You're good, and you have good plans. And so, Lord, wherever we're at, I ask that you would speak clearly to each one of us. I ask that you would hold our hearts and sink your love deep into all of the the broken places and the hurting places. And, Lord, we ask that you would just be glorified in each one here and in every relationship and life represented. In Jesus' name, amen.